You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. And welcome to episode 68 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. And this time around, I'm going to be covering issue 60 of the comic, which continues the POW story that began last episode with our down airmen being taken by the NVA. That story takes place in May of 1972, but I covered that month last episode. So this time around, I'm going to take a look at January and February 1970, which is where this episode's song comes from. That's I Want You Back by the Jackson 5. The song, which was released in late 1969, hit number one on January 31st, 1970, spending one week there. This is one of a string of hits for the group and is one of their signature songs, along with the next song they released, which would be ABC. Our story is every kind of people, and the creative team for this is Chuck Dixon, writer, Wayne Van Zandt, penciler, Kim DeMolder, inker, Phil Felix, letterer, colorist, Don Daly, editor, and Tom DeFalco was your editor-in-chief. The Nom number 60 came out on July 30th, 1991, and had a September 1991 cover date, according to Mike's Amazing World. May 1972, somewhere north of the DMZ. You hear lots of stories about pilots they take prisoner. They shoot them on sight. They give them special treatment. One of the stories comes true right away. They take my watch and my University of Maine ring. I swallowed my wedding ring as soon as I hit the ground. Worry about that later. They want to tie my hands. I resist, but they're shouting at me. Keeping my hands behind my back is the hardest thing I've ever done. Maybe the smartest, too. I hurt my leg when I landed. It's hard enough walking with my hands bound. The comma wire bites into my skin. They force march me to levee along the paddies. Are they taking me to be shot? We separate from the militiamen. I guess they're going back to their farms. I think about escape. Now would be the best time. I'm still thinking about it when we join others in the dark. The others are airmen too. I only recognize Bittinger from my group. We're not allowed to talk. They march us along a dog path that, by dawn, leads us through a ville. It's not a collection of huts, but permanent brick buildings. Small town, North Vietnam. No rescues for us, no walking home. We are deep in the little man's home turf. Farmers come out to get a look at us. They know what we are. They know we're pilots. The hatred in their eyes. I know now that our guards are here to protect us as much as to prevent us from escaping. We get to ride now. Good thing, too. The wounded guy is in bad shape. So we know that they want us alive. Fears of getting killed are replaced by fears of torture now. So this is the victorious people's army. They're indifferent to us. They seem more interested in napping and smoking the cigarettes they took off of us. This is going to be home, then. Nothing like on Hogan's Heroes. The place looks like a rest home from the last century. There's a lot of shouting as they get us down from the trucks. Everything they do is done with lots of shouting. They hush up when an officer approaches. At first we think he's our executioner. He turns out to be our commandant. It looked like the guy wanted to fillet us. 
The guards get a charge out of all this. They split us up for now. We never got to talk. All I know is their names from the tags and their flight suits. I never see Dorenzi again. Time passes slowly. Richie is thrown into a dark room. At some point, a man who identifies himself as Major Nguyen Wang, the commander of the garrison, enters and begins to ask questions. He tries to play good cop, in a sense, and Richie is standoffish, saying that all he has to do is tell him his name, rank, service number, and date of birth. Wang tells Richie, they'll get him to come around more progressive thinking before they release him, maybe in six months or a year. He tells him that he will write his life story while sitting in a cell and then asks him if he wants anything. Richie requests food. They give him cold rice with fish sauce and then pulls out a match that he has hidden, thinking that knowledge of magic card tricks has come in handy. There is someone in the cell next to him. He says that he's from the Army, 23rd Infantry. Richie said that he's been asked to write his life story, and the guy next door says, That jive, huh? Then gives him advice to tell him that he was a farmer. Richie asks what his name was, and the guy says, Ramnerain. You can call me Jerry. Richie takes Ramnerain's advice, and Wang is impressed that he's not and then is not impressed by Richie's attempts to snow, stonewall him. Later that evening, Ramnarine and Richie talk some more, and Ramnarine says that he'll, he's been in his cell for five years. Richie says that Wang wants him to think progressively and that will get him released, which is something Ramnarine scoffs at as more jive. He then leaves. Two weeks go by. There's the same routine, the same food for dinner, the same conversation with Wang in the afternoon and talking with Ramnarine at night. He continues to be uncooperative to Wang, and that night tells Ramnarine the entire story about how he came to the camp. The next day, it seems that, Harang, that Wang knows even more about him, including details about Operation Linebacker. He wants Richie to confess his crimes against the people of Vietnam. Richie then realizes that the reason Wang knows all of this is that Ramnarine was telling him everything. He's furious when he sees Ramnarine on the way back to his cell. It's the first time he's seen him, but he knows it's him. He says, I understand why they did it, but what would make him do this? I hate him worse than I hate Huang. I want to kill him for all those nights he bled information from me. Then two NVA soldiers pick Ramnarine up and reveal that the man has lost both his legs below the knee. Riching, seemingly defeated, heads back to the cell, but reveals that he still has his match. He decides it's time to enact his escape plan. He signs his confession and Wang is pleased the next day when he is brought before him and tells the guards to take Richie to get a bath. Richie then beats up his guards, shoots one, and uses the match to light a barrel of gasoline on fire. As the soldiers in the camp run around in chaos, he makes his way out thinking, They've got their hands full. I'll never get a better chance. Any direction will do as long as it's away from here. Probably don't have a snowball's chance, but running is the only plan I have. To be concluded. This is a solid second chapter for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, we haven't seen the inside of a POW camp very often. I know we briefly saw this camp a while back, sometimes around late December of one year, when Doug Murray wrote a scene reminding us that Ravnerine was still alive. And we saw a bit of a prison during the Punisher issues I went over. But this is more detailed POW story. We see the tactics that were used to get what they wanted out of the prisoners, as well as the lengths people go to under such dire circumstances. And Richie, it should be noted, was not a soldier whom we'd been led to believe was as tough as he is because he was a B-52 pilot who was stationed in Guam. So his actual Vietnam experience did not involve his boots being on the ground, as opposed to, say, of course, any of the characters from the 23rd that we've seen already. But he stands up to his captors and he's smarter than he seemed at the beginning of the previous issue. 
Plus, we get Ramnerine, who we haven't seen in at least a few years at this point, and whom nobody has seen since 1967, which is when he was captured. Ramnerine, if you remember, was a typically cynical, standoffish character who didn't seem to want to follow the orders of any higher up, and honestly didn't believe in fighting a war that he thought was for the betterment of rich or white people. The only other thing I can think of that any of us will remember about him will be, that he was the, will be that he was the reason that Top was taken away early on because he helped internal affairs and cover the bribery schemes that the man was running. I bring that up not only because Ramnerine was cynical and standoffish at various points when he was in the 23rd, but he was also very self-serving, so it actually makes quite a bit of sense that he would sell Richie out, especially when we see that in five years when he's lost his legs. I honestly don't know if this would be, lead him to being released or if that was what he was promised. But it is the actions of someone who, of his personality, especially after this amount of imprisonment and hardship. Plus, I will say that the reveal of Ramnering without legs was surprising because the entire issue, he's a disembodied voice in the next cell who is a person that Richie can talk to. And we see him completely emotionless at the moment, sitting what looks like cross-legged on the ground before he is lifted up with no legs and taken back to his cell. Van Sant and DeMolder sell it very well, and it feels like an actual twist, especially to those who may have seen his selling Richie out coming. And the whole situation makes Richie sound like a weak character. In some level it is, but it's also consistent with his characters that was shown quite a while ago. Well, Richie isn't smart enough to realize that he shouldn't trust anyone, especially someone who's being that friendly to him. He is smart enough to plan for the right moment to get out of there. It's a desperate move, but Dixon shows us that by that point, Richie realizes that desperate times call for desperate measures in this situation, and that's why he's been saving that single match. And the escape at the end is done very well, with Dixon, Van Zant, and DeMolder using only three pages to tell of the escape and doing it completely silently between the time that Huang says, Very good, Lieutenant. You have performed this task admirably. You have shown yourself to be most progressive. You shall have a blanket and a bath and tonight, a sliver of fat in your rice. Take him to the bath now. And when Richie narrates at the end, everything is done absolutely silently using multi-panel pages. There's a long shot of the guards leading Richie away from Wang's office, then a close-up of Richie's sweaty face before he quickly elbows one guard and immediately pins him down and steals his gun, shooting the other guard before taking off. The guard he tackled watches him go. We see a guard in a tower see what's going on and try to shoot Richie, who is heading over to where four barrels are stored. We see him strike the match on one of the barrels and drop it on some gasoline that is on the ground. The guard that was chasing him gets caught in the flames and then he takes off. It's paced well. It's also realistic because it's not, you know, Frank Castle escaping and being, wait for it, a punisher. But as I said, the desperate actions of a desperate man. The issue builds tension well, and this ending makes us want to find out what happens in the next issue. If I have one criticism, it's the cover, which is by Ron Wagner. It shows Richie behind a bamboo prison cell st- gate staring out, and there's a caption box saying, to get out, will he sell out? The way it's colored, Richie has a greenish-yellow tint to his face, and the whites of his eyes are pink while the iris is blue. It's a very 90s cover. Richie, in fact, looks, looks almost like a villain rather than a sympathetic hero of the story. It's the weakest of the three covers of the story arc, and while it's not a terrible cover, it's definitely not one that I rank up there with the best of covers. And that, that'll do it for this issue. I'm going to take a quick break, and when I get back, I'll talk historical context, letters, and ads. Carrel, you have traveled far. One journey has ended, 
A new journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, Magnus here. I do a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. What I do is spend six episodes talking about comics, movies, and TV shows, but all that stuff gets put on hold every eighth episode so that I can talk about Smallville. Smallville's the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history. Smallville's my favorite version of Superman apart from the comics, and so every eighth episode, I put Smallville under a microscope. Listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville truly is and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. I've recently finished what most people regard as Smallville's first run with the conclusion of the mighty third season of the show. But as awesome as Smallville may have been up to this point, the best is still to come. And I want you along for the ride. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville, an eighth episode feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Now with fewer cigarette breaks. So check out Magnus Talks About Smallville every eighth Tuesday for all the Smallville small talk you could ever hope to shake a stick at. Magnus Talks About Smallville every eighth Tuesday only at Two True Freaks. Dot com. There honestly was not very much going on in January 1970, at least is not anything I could figure out. February is pretty quiet as well. And the events worth mentioning are that on February 2nd, there are B-52 bombings along the Ho Chi Minh Trail in retaliation for strikes that have been happening in South Vietnam. Then on February 18th, according to Wikipedia, back on the home front, a jury finds the Chicago 7 defendants not guilty of conspiring to incite a riot. Charges stemming from the violence of the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Five of the defendants are found guilty on the lesser charge of crossing state lines to incite a riot. One other event for this month would be on February 21st, and it has to do with the ongoing peace talks in Paris. According to History Place, although the official peace talks remain deadlocked in Paris, behind the scenes, Henry Kissinger begins a series of secret talks with North Vietnam's Lee Duc Tho, which will go on for two years. More will happen in March, which is what I'll be looking at in the next episode. So let's take a look at our letters and ads. And incoming this month, Stephen Hutchings of Medford, Massachusetts, says he wants to tell you he wanted to write in and say that Wayne Van Sant is just not up to par with his artwork in the NOM. I'm not trying to be mean, but I believe the way to make the NOM more liked by comic audience is to have a good artist. The writing is just as good as ever. Judging from the back issues, the NOM has decreased in value since Mike Golden left. But after about 40 issues, I think it's time for Wayne to step down and let someone else finish off the series before it gets too unbearable to read. The two-issue Punisher stint was fantastic, and I think the man up for the job is Mike Harris. Please take this art direction suggestion under consideration. You want this series to last 96 issues, don't you? And they say, art is indeed very subjective, Steve. And so on the other hand, Josh Hall writes in, I had trouble writing this letter because being only 16, I am not a product of the Vietnam era. Your story of the death of Joe Howland moved me so much, I am compelled to write. I admire the way in which you guys realistically portray these people in times. I am sad to say that I only started 
collecting with the Frank Castle storyline. I credit my conversion to the NAM to the article about it in Marvel Age. I have learned more about Vietnam in seven issues of the NAM than I have in several years of social studies, which totals about a half hour. So keep up the good work. Long storylines are good, but please stay away from the commercial storylines. Keep Wayne Van Sanders artist. He knows how to tell a story, and thanks for enlightening me. He says, you're more than welcome, Josh, but before you advise against commercial storylines, think of two things. Without some degree of commercial success, there wouldn't be any stories to read. Two, without the commercial storyline of the Punisher in the NOM, there would be, wouldn't have been a Marvel Age article, and you might not have picked us up. Scary, ain't it? And I do want to point out, they're talking about Wayne Van Zandt's art. After the last page, there's two pinups, and, and Van Zandt's been doing these here and there. Um, one of them is basically a... Parach- somebody parachuting from um, a plane that had been shot down holding a gun. But there's another one that's more informative. It's simply a map of Vietnam with uh, people on bikes and, and elephants and other uh, other things on the bottom. Uh, Vietnamese, it says it's about the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Uh, it says during the Vietnam War... Most Americans' conception of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, the communist supply route from North Vietnam to South Vietnam, was that of a broad highway carrying trucks and followed by columns of marching troops. Nothing could have been farther from the truth. The trail was a series of trails, dirt roads, and river crossings 30 miles wide and covering a 6,000-mile network. Much of it was covered by jungle. It reached southward 200 to 300 miles into Cambodia and South Vietnam. One Air Force officer described it as a, quote, spider web and another spider web lying on top of it and another and another. At the height of the American effort against the trail, as many as 400 aircraft attacked it every day, including 30 B-52s, each carrying 30 tons of bombs. But the supplies rolled steadily on. And it's little pieces like this are really, really interesting, especially as we're getting um, more and more into the series where the series isn't getting as much publicity. And I might track down that Marvel Age issue just to see what was was in there. But, um, you know, they are doing their best to kind of keep themselves to that mandate of actually telling the story of the war the way it was, as opposed to um, giving us uh, more and more Punisher stories, or at least in that regard, anyway. Uh, Steven E, sorry, Sean E. Sag of Phoenix, Arizona writes and he says, I'm 16 years old. I read your comics all the time. My father was in Vietnam from 67 to 68 and he served in one tour of duty with 25th Division, 4th Battalion, 9th Infantry, Manchus, Mancus. He's told me lots of things about the war, including night patrols and ambushes he went on. We both like your comics a lot. Keep up the good work. Uh, they say, glad to hear it, Sean, as we like to say the family that noms together, or let us work on it a bit. Finally, I get, Hey, Legs, inasmuch as I hate to prove a cadet correct, in reference to Cadet Sergeant Robert A. Copperidge's letter, an M9 does not look like an M1911A1 45 caliber at any angle. To prove a point, I have includes two photographs of myself holding an example of each weapon. Though the 45 is a much is a shorter model of the 1911, still the two pistols don't look anything alike. PFC George Lobo, May the 3rd, Concord, California, late of 82nd Airborne Division Infantry, currently 80, 820th Engine Battalion, Engineering Battalion or Engine Battalion um, Reserve. Well, Lobo, we've decided to let the readers see for themselves. Below are two photos of the two weapons. Can anyone tell which one's the mother and which one's the daughter? 
if you've got your own family portraits of yourself and your favorite small arms or heavy ordinances, tanks, helicopters, battleships, etc., we'd love to see them. If we get enough responses, a gunshots photo gallery might become a regular feature on the letters page. Um, and we see that um, there's two of them. I guess there's a difference. I'm not an expert in firearms, and unfortunately, the there's the the two photos, the way they're reprinted, it, it they're kind of overexposed, like. Not overexposed. It was like you ever make a photocopy of a photocopy. That's <laughs> kind of what it looks like. Where like you know the 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 quality is a little bit diminished by the uh, the fact that it's a black and white picture, and they're probably you know reprinting a picture that had been taken because this is 1991. So the ability to to scan and provide that sort of high quality high res photo is not exactly there. But I it is pretty cool to see that the effort that some of the readers are going through to 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 prove points or, or you know, show things. Um, the nom notes for this month are once again DMZ and Commo Wire, Demilitarized Zone, and Communication Wire. And uh, the next issue of the series will be the conclusion, and that's what we'll pick up next episode. But before we leave, we're going to take a look at some of the ads. The Ready Aim Punish uh, ad are it starts us off in the back cover. Um, then we have a trading card. Star Trek 25th Anniversary trading card set, um, which has trading cards from Star Trek and Star Trek The Next Generation. And there were like two separate decks for that. I had a lot of these cards. Um, I was still pretty big into Trek at this point and was really, really gearing up for Star Trek VI and just looking at these cards. I I think I just, I think I sold the binder or, or somehow lost the binder. I don't, I don't know why I don't have those cards anymore. They probably did sell them on eBay years ago. Um, we have a Rift, the Rift role-playing game ad. We have a Fleer football card ad for the 91 Fleer series uh, with Bill's defensive linebacker Leon Seals, Raiders linebacker Howie Long, Bengals defensive back David Fulcher, Oilers quarterback Warren Moon, All-Pro 91 Mike Singletary, and some sort of huge-looking painted special card um, featuring Dan Marino. The Science Fiction Book Club, four for a dollar plus a free copy of Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein. Um, and what else we got? We have a glossy ad here in the middle, uh, right by the staples. Um, the the front, the first page and the last page, I think, are two separate ads that just happen to fall where this this glossy piece is. But because there's the collector cards for Terminator Two Judgment Day, and then the usual Marvel um, T-shirt ad that they've been running. But inside, there's the Maztica Forgotten Realms uh, sets, which is don't leave your castle without if and new arms equipment guides and things like for that and uh forgotten realms uh discover the unspoiled true world beholds mastic its ju lush jungle greenery the desert shimmering sands the birds brilliant plumage the natives gentle demeanor beware though of the dark side of this paradise the gods are very much alive and their troubles become yours set in the countries described in the mastic and novel trilogy the mastic box sets let you Recreate the story from Iron Helm, Viper Hand, and Feathered Dragon, or build campaigns of your own. Four new character classes add to the mystique. 
Um, this really does look like it's more based on Aztecs and Mayans than, say, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, medieval Knights and things like that. It looks interesting. I wonder if anybody listening has ever actually ever ended up playing it. I don't know how popular the Forgotten Realms stuff was in the, in the gamer world because I was never a, a big gamer. We have a Mile High Comics ad that goes on for two pages. Uh, bullpen bulletins this month. It's the uh, talking about the San Diego Comic Cons coming up, and stands hyping that. We have the Kulo meter going now, um, and uh, and they're just doing about about how July is hot yet. There's a lot of cool stuff going on, and um, a bunch of people are having babies. Apparently, um, Gilbert Gottfried is doing something with Scott Lobdell. I don't know. Jim Lee has something in Marvel Age. Terminator 2 is the coolest movie, as well as Bill, what they're calling Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure 2, not Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. I guess they were not entirely sure what the uh, what the title was yet. Um, there's a Mary Jane Watson post by Joe Jusco and the Marvel swimsuit issue, of course. And then there's the Coolamita, Coolamita, Coolometer, where cool is the Infinity Gauntlet, Penn and Teller, Bare Knees, the Rocketeer, Thai Food, Supermodel, Claudia Schiffer, The Simpsons, Michael Jordan, Geek Chic, um, and Quasar is about in the middle. The Flash TV show is slightly less than the middle. Yeah, of course. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles slightly lower than that. But all the way at the bottom, uh, we've got towards the uncool Bojacks and the new kids on the block, the McLe- the McLean Burger. Oh, God, remember that thing? <sighs> they ate their words. Critics are saying McDonald's new McLean Deluxe is revolutionary. That's because it's made with the leanest beef patty in the business. 91% fat-free. They're calling it phenomenal. That's because it tastes fantastic. The public demanded, McDonald's responded. With great burger taste and a lot less fat. But don't fill up on the press. Taste for yourself. One bite and you'll be talking about it too. So swallow first. New McLean Deluxe. After billions and billions, another first at McDonald's today. Steven Seagal, Bell Bottoms Voguing, Vanilla Ice, Ponytails on Men, and Regis and Kathy Lee. Score has some 9091 football cards. The Hulk is still peering at us over his shades. And we have number six. I can't remember if I did this because this is the this is the return of the Three Musketeers ads. We have below the Dakota Badlands, paleontologists brush off what looks like the biggest Tyrannosaurus Rex find ever. Any sign of a food source? We'll dynamite that other mountain and see. I've set the charge. And it's a giant Three Musketeers bar, of course, that says, This proves my theory. He wasn't just big. He was big on chocolate. Where will Three Musketeers turn up next? I don't know. I don't know how many of these ads they have left. Uh, The back cover is the Marvel Trading Card Series 2 ad, and that will do it. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode, which will cover the NOM issue 61. Until then, take care, and thanks for listening. You 
have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanzacore of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom.